everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Bernard Cornwell about The Pagan Lord, the seventh in his Saxon Tales, a highly acclaimed series that began with The Last Kingdom. As the inside jacket of The Pagan Lord notes, at the onset of the 10th century, England is in turmoil. Turmoil is always a good place for a novel to begin, and here it results from the recent death of Alfred the Great, who spent most of his reign beating back the attempts by Danish invaders to conquer Wessex, and who dreamed of uniting England into a single country. With Alfred's death, that mission passes to his son Edward. Their stalwart, if at times truculent supporter in this endeavor, is Uhtred de Bevenberg, the sword of the Saxons and heartfelt believer in the old Danish gods. He is the eye of the passage that follows. A dark sky. The gods make the sky. It reflects their moods, and they were dark that day. It was high summer, and a bitter rain was spitting from the east. It felt like winter. I was mounted on lightning, my best horse. He was a stallion, black as night, but with a slash of grey pelt running down his hindquarters. He was named for a great hound I had once sacrificed to Thor. I hated killing that dog. But the gods are hard on us. They demand sacrifice and then ignore us. This lightning was a huge beast, powerful and sullen, a war horse, and I was in my war glory on that dark day. I was dressed in mail and clad in steel and leather. Serpent breath, best of swords, hung at my left side, though for the enemy I faced that day I needed no sword, no shield, no axe. But I wore her anyway because serpent breath was my companion. I still own her. When I die, and that must be soon, someone will close my fingers around the leather bindings of her worn hilt, and she will carry me to Valhalla, to the corpse hall of the high gods, and we shall feast there. But not that day. That dark summer day, I sat in the saddle in the middle of a muddy street, facing the enemy. I could hear them, but not see them. They knew I was there. Bernard Cornwell has so many New York Times best-selling novels that we hardly have time to list them all. They include, in addition to The Seven Saxon Tales, 1356 and Agincourt, as well as 21 novels to date, featuring Richard Sharp, set in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So without more ado, let us welcome him to New Books in Historical Fiction. Bernard, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you have a really interesting history, uh, which you um, have recorded in part on your website. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became a writer? Well, I became a writer completely by accident, and um, I'm very glad the accident happened. My background, well, I was a, I was a war baby, so I, mean, I was born in the Second World War, and I was adopted into a ghastly family of um, religious fanatics. They belonged to a sect called the Peculiar People, and they were. But I managed to escape them, and eventually I got a job in with BBC Television. I mean, this was my last proper job, and I was a producer in their news and current affairs department. And then one day, when I was filming in Edinburgh, I saw a blonde walk out of an elevator, and I said to my reporter, I'm going to marry that one. Well, it took me 18 months, and part of the problem was that she was an American, and for family reasons, she couldn't live in Britain. So I rather airily said, I'll go and live in America then. Uh, so I gave up my job, and then discovered I couldn't get a green card, and which meant I was moving to America without any job or prospect of a job. So I said to Judy, don't worry, darling, I'll write a book. I've always wanted to. And that's how it started, 35 years ago. We're still married. Um, so there you are. Is that enough background? 
sure. But I'm a little curious. So you just sat down and, and wrote a book? Was it the first of the Sharp books? It was the first of the Sharp. Well, in fact, it was not the first chronologically. It was Sharp's Eagle. Uh, I mean, it was, it was an insane decision when I think about it. Well, we often say what an insane decision it was. And I've never done it. I've never written a book before. I had no idea how to write a book. I think I wanted to. I always had this sort of vague idea that being a writer was better than actually having a job. And so, I, I mean, what what other you know, if, if I was going to if I was going to live with her and marry her, I I had to earn a living, and I was forbidden to work in America, at least legally. So, didn't really have much choice. Did you have an, an interest in the Napoleonic Wars? Um, yes, I did. I mean, I, I um, when I was a kid, I, le- I read the Hornblower stories, and there were only eleven Hornblowers. I mean, strangely, Forrester was 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 oddly reluctant to write them. Uh, whenever Little Brown was sort of running short on profits, uh, they used to send a delegation to him with a bag full of whiskey and say, please write another Hornblower. Um, but he wrote eleven, and once once I'd read all the eleven. There was nothing else to read because nobody else was doing those naval stories. I mean, Patrick O'Brien was a long, long way away. Alexander Kent was a long way away. So I started reading the nonfiction books and that sort of discovered the Napoleonic Wars. And I thought, wow, the stories about the army are just as exciting as the Navy. And so I really spent years looking for a sort of Forrester series set on land. And one day a little light bulb went on in my head and I thought, well, if no one is writing it. Why don't you write it? But I never did anything about it until, of course, I met Judy. And so at least I knew what I wanted to write, which is always an advantage. And was it, I mean, some people write a novel and it's their first novel and it sells and it's wonderful. And, but a lot of us, you know, we revise and revise and revise. We have to go to writers groups and this kind of thing. Once oh, you God, actually you started. Want to, you want to avoid writers groups like the plague. Oh, really? <laughs> I mean, I think almost a sort of sure way not to become a writer is to join a writers group. <laughs> really? I mean, it, writing is a solitary vice for a start. Mm-hmm. And you write what you want to read. Um, so the very first person you have to satisfy is yourself, uh, not the bully in the writer's group who knows everything and is only there to, to prove that he knows much better than you, and it will always be a man, um, that, that he knows better than you, which only is going to knock your confidence. I mean, I'm not a great believer in writer's block, which we can talk about, but I do think writer's block affects beginning writers. You know, when you're working on your first novel, you, you're assailed by doubts. You think, is this good enough? Will it ever work? The last thing you need is to go and hear it being criticized by people. You know, you're the critic. You write it for yourself. And the second person you have to write for is an agent, and the third person is a publisher. After that, go to as many writers' groups as you like, but avoid them when you're actually trying to write. So you think writer's block is mostly a question of self-doubt? No, I think writer's block is a a horrible case of self-indulgence. I mean, I'll believe in writer's block on the day that a nurse can phone up a hospital and say, I'm awfully sorry, I can't come to work today because I've got nurse's block. And the hospital says, oh, no, you mustn't. No, you poor thing. You must not go to work. You've got nurse's block. I mean, that story sounds ridiculous. But being a nurse is far more difficult than being a writer. Far more difficult. I mean, what, every writer I know volunteered. They wanted to do it. 
and then they say, oh gosh, it's too difficult, I can't do it. <laughs> okay, well, I don't have a problem with writer's block, actually, so I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you, but uh, I did have a very good writer's group, but I know that there, there are lots, you know, I sort of lucked into it. I th- there are many, many people who are satisfying their egos and, uh, by criticizing other writers, so I certainly understand where you're coming from there. So you wrote, you sat down and you wrote Sharp's Eagle, and did you have to revise it, rewrite it, or would you? Well, I think I I mean, I I didn't actually revise it very much. I mean, um, I mean, it was all different back then because for a start there were no sort of word processors and and computers, so I I was working on an old typewriter. Um, No, I was again, I was incredibly lucky. What 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 happened with it? I mean, I, I I wrote the thing. I was living in New Jersey at the time, and I knew that it probably was not going to be published in America, it was going to be published in Britain. And through my connections in television, I knew um, an agent. So I sent the book to this agent, and it came back I, almost by return of post with a, with a note saying, nobody's interested in stories about the army. Forget it. Um, I still see that guy at parties. I really enjoy meeting him. <laughs> I bet you do. And so I, I then sent it really out of the blue, straight to a publisher. And I got an offer on the book. And it was actually a very bad offer. I'm sorry, this is a long story. Anyway, about, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to, I mean, at least it was an offer. It was not giving me nearly enough money to live for another six, seven months in New Jersey. And we had an invitation to go to a um, Thanksgiving Day party that overlooked the Macy's Day Parade route. So I'm standing on a balcony and with a big Bloody Mary, and a voice behind me says, oh, that's right, because the All-American McDonald's high school band was high-stepping beneath us, playing sort of selections from Oklahoma or something. And his voice behind me said, they do this sort of thing frightfully well, don't they? And I, being a brilliant conversationalist, said, oh, you're English. Yes, he said. Ah, I said, "Uh, what do you do? He said, I'm a literary agent. I said, well, I've just written a novel. Whereupon he said, well, I can't tell you what he said. It was one word. We'll just say bleep. And he turned around and walked away. So I followed him into into the room. And I said, I've actually got an offer on this novel. And, And his eyes lit up like a fruit machine. And, and he said, how much? And I said, 3,000 pounds world rights. He said, then it must be a bleeping awful novel and walked away again. So I sort of trapped him a third time and said, you know, begged him, please will you read my novel? And he said, all right, dear boy, if I must bring it in tomorrow to Grand Central Station Oyster Bar. So I did. And he phoned me up that night and he said, how much do you want for it? And I said, well, I want enough to live for another six months. And within two weeks, I had a seven-book contract. Fantastic. What a great story. Yeah, I was lucky. He's still my agent. I still have the same agent, wife, and publisher after 36 years. <laughs> That's great. So uh, we're actually talking several weeks before this interview is going to air because you spend every summer on Cape Cod um, acting. Is uh... Yeah, summer's on Cape Cod and winter's in Charleston, South Carolina. And does that feed into your fiction in some way, or is it quite separate? Oh, I don't think it's, you know, I'm, I don't think so. I mean, I love both places. A lot of people say, why don't you write about Charleston? And I'd love to one day, because I absolutely adore Charleston. I think it's probably the nicest place I've ever lived. But I can't, I know, I mean, I tend to lock myself away in a dark room. 
and and I really don't care where I am as long as the room is dark. It's like Somerset Maugham. He bought that wonderful house on the Cap d'Antibes, and the reason he bought it was that it had a tower room with windows that looked all the way down the French Riviera, and he thought that would be the perfect room to work in. And within a month, he had a builder come round and brick up the windows. Wow. So, um, so you started with Sharp, and you wrote a bunch of Sharp novels, right? And then and at some point, you began to branch out, and you have, I counted at least four series on your website. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and some no, standalones. I, um, I mean, I think there's, I'm actually not quite sure how many books there are. It's either 52 or 53. Um, but, but I've forgotten most of them. There were 21 eventually in the Sharp series. But then let's think, there's the Starbucks series, the Sharp series, the three books on Alfred, the four books of the Hundred Years' War trilogy. It's the only trilogy with four books that I know of. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, obviously, Uhtred, that's five. Right. So do you go... I think it's only five. Okay. So do you go back and forth, or do you work in one series for a while? Well, I tend to... I, I, used, to go, I used to write two books a year, um, which I stopped when I fell among actors and although this last year I wrote two um, now I do one I mm, I don't know it depends whatever I feel like as I said to you right at the beginning you write for yourself it's whatever you feel like writing mm-hmm. it's whatever will, it's whatever is going to be the most fun for that winter to write mm-hmm. is it hard doing research for all those different areas gosh no I mean I, I you know it's um, no no I mean, I can't say I actually love the research, but I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining about it. Uh, I mean, and also research is, a, is an absolutely lifelong occupation. You know, I started reading about the Napoleonic Wars when I was 13, 14. And by the time I started writing, I was 35. You know, I knew, I mean, God, I was a horrible bore about it because I knew so much about it. Um, and it's the same, really, with the Anglo-Saxons. I, I, I came across the Anglo-Saxons when I was at university, reading their poetry. And so, no, it's not a bore. I mean, I, I enjoy the research, although, in fact, I think probably you throw out 95% of it. Yeah, you have to, really. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, I mean, you will be boring the reader, right? Oh, God, yeah, I mean, boring the reader, which is the cardinal sin. <laughs> So I, I remember somebody sent me a novel once because they wanted me to do a puff for it. And, and I won't name names. But, you know, page one, it started off with this Roman slave walking past the Colosseum. And she, says, she looks at it and she says, she thinks, oh, she thinks, it was built in whatever year it was by whatever emperor it was, and it was rebuilt in the year. And I stopped reading at that point. In other words, because she's simply copying off a two-by-four card. Mm-hmm. It's boring. We don't need to know any of it. It's also probably not what people think in everyday life. I mean, when I'm walking well, yes, past... Exactly, yes. I mean, yes, you tend not to walk past the Statue of Liberty and say, gosh, it was, you know, you don't. But right. anyway, there it is. Um, so let's hone in on the Saxon tales. Um, your publicist was wonderfully generous. She sent me Death of Kings as well as The Pagan Lord, um, and I bought The Last Kingdom. So I've read the beginning and the end, but not the middle. We <laughs> <laughs> don't need to read the middle, do you? <laughs> I love that, yeah. Who was it? I can't remember. It was somebody who said, I always like it when an author dies because I know I've got all her books. Um, <laughs> but then there'll never be any more, so that's very yes, sad, that's right, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Peters, I was a great fan of hers. I was very sad when she died last year because I knew there would never be any more Amelia Peabody's. Yeah, I know. It's sad, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes, that is. 
So, but, uh, so I have a sense of where things begin. Um, and I, I saw, I think it was in the historical note or maybe on your website that Uhtred is, is molded on a direct ancestor of yours. Well, I, yes, it's, I, I wouldn't say modeled on. Um, again, story. Uh, when I was in my 50s, uh, I discovered my birth parents for the first time. I'd always known their names, and, and to be really honest, I actually wasn't that interested. Uh, but I was in Vancouver and doing an interview with the Vancouver Sun, and I could see the poor guy was bored to death. He'd been told to come and interview me, and he really didn't want to. Um, so I thought I'd wake him up a little, and I said, well, actually, my real father lives out here. And which immediately he saw a human interest story. And I gave him not the full name, I gave him the surname. And within three days, I had a message saying, your father is, and this is his address. So I actually met him. Um, and we had a very good relationship until he died. And his name was Outred, O-U-G-H-T-R-E-D. And on the second or third time I visited him, he came up with this family tree, which in the end turned out to be accurate. It goes all the way back to the 6th century. And, of course, Uhtred is simply, you know, the root of Outred. And the, the Uhtreds were the lords of this castle, Bebenberg, which is now Bamburgh Castle on the English coast in Northumbria. And I thought, whoa, that's... Look, let me, now we're going to wind the clock back. Most historical novels have two stories, okay? They have a big story and a little story. Now, the big story in Gone with the Wind is obviously the Civil War. The little story is Can Scarlet Save Tara? And, and the trick of 95% of historical novels is simply flipping those stories. So the little story is in the foreground and the big story is in the background. And I always had the big story for the Saxon books, which is the making of England. What I didn't have was the little story. But meeting my, my real father gave me the little story because I thought, how on earth did this family hang on to this land despite the Danish invasion? Because the whole of that part of England was captured by the Danes, the Danish kings. And yet they did hold on to it. And so that really became the little story. But how they did it, we don't know. We have very few records. We've got about three signatures of Uhtred's uh, on land charters, and that's about it. We know no I mean, nothing about him. And I make him into this sort of... Um, great warlord hero for all i know he was a complete wimp <laughs> yeah no i noticed that he i would i would have been surprised if that were not the case because it's so long ago and the records from back then are so scarce so but so he is in effect your invention even though he has he's, no he's pure he's absolutely mm -hmm. pure invention but it, but but i mean in other words there was three or four men in the in the ninth tenth centuries who had that name and and held that land but we know almost nothing about them. We know quite a lot about one who lived in the 11th century as the first one with whom we have really good records. Uh, and the family still exists. I mean, they lost, they lost Bevan Burke, but they became um, big landowners in Yorkshire. So, yeah, it's his invention. So tell us about the invented Uhtred as you envision him. Uh, when we first meet him in The Last Kingdom, he's a young boy. He's around 10 years old. Uh, he's the son of an alderman. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, which was the highest non-royal title among Saxons at the time. Um, he's a warrior in training because that's, you know, he's a boy of that class. And he's almost immediately captured by the Danes. Yeah, which, which is, which is uh, he's good luck. Um, and he, he really thinks of himself as a Dane, although he knows that he's Saxon born and bred. It's, it's a dreadful period in the history of Britain. And I'm not going to say the history of England because England didn't exist then. 
But in the history of Britain, it is an absolutely dreadful period. Uh, it is full of warfare. Uh, I mean, it's almost constant warfare right across the whole island. And, and we, I say we, meaning those of us who were born and brought up in Britain, tend to think of it as a rather peaceful place. You know, the last real war there was in the 17th century. And, uh, and it's, it's quite extraordinary to think of the battles and the slaughters and the massacres that went on across the country. Um, so if you read their poetry, if you read their law, their, their, their law records and so on, you see what, a, what, a, what a, a warrior society this was. So it's important that he becomes a warrior. Uh, I always like, I mean, the, the main character in the first four books is, is, well, not the main character, one of the most important characters is Alfred, Alfred the Great, King of, of Wessex. And, uh, I mean, it would be quite easy to make Uhtred into a friend of Alfred and they could sort of, sort of chum around and have nice conversations, but it's much more interesting if they basically dislike each other. And uh, I admire Alfred. In many ways, Alfred is the father of England. And he's an extremely admirable and moral man. But I, did, I wanted Uhtred to dislike him simply because it makes it more interesting to write. So Uhtred, he's a pagan because he was brought up as a pagan by the Danes, but I think he's, he's probably a pagan simply because he knows it annoys the Christians rather than because he actually believes. Yes, <laughs> I guess in a sense we could think of it as your revenge on the peculiar people. <laughs> <laughs> well, the peculiar people disapproved of novels, they disapproved of television, they disapproved of the military, and thank goodness they disapproved of blondes. So, you know, I, my whole life in many ways has been a, a, a reaction. I'm long past it now. Um, but it does... Be, sorry, sorry go ahead. Uh, well, no, yeah. I, I was going to say the nice thing was I, I grew up in a part of England where, where a lot of this was still within... I'm not going to say within memory, but certainly within the folklore. Um, I lived on top of a hill. Well, we, we did. I was brought up on top of a hill. Uh, where the Danes had fought the Saxons, and the hill was named after, they think, after the Saxon war cry. Um, and, you know, there, there's, a, there's a Danish camp about three miles away. So I, and I've always loved history, and I always loved living in a place that had history, which I guess is why I like Charleston and Cape Cod. Um, but I did grow up in a place where this history was real to us, if you, if you bothered to find out about it. So, I mean, in a sense, in a certain sense, the answer to this question is going to be very obvious. Uh, but what are the Danes looking for? I mean, oh, the Danes are looking for land. They're looking um, for land, not not just. They're looking for, for land. Yes, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, you have this enormous Scandinavian expansion, which which begins in uh, really in the tenth century. I mean, you know, we call it the Vikings, uh, and the Vikings have been completely over romanticized. You know, horned helmets. They never wore horned helmets. They were much too sensible because a horned helmet can be knocked off with a sword blow. Um, but they spread everywhere. I mean, the, the Rus, who were Vikings from Sweden or Norway, um, went along the rivers into Russia and gave their name to Russia. Um, they went to Iceland. We know they reached as far as Newfoundland. They, they went as far south as Sicily. Uh, they had these extraordinary boats and very little agricultural land back home. So you had this, this sudden energy and expansion. And, of course, England was right on one of the southern routes, or Britain, so, so they're going to settle there. And they settle in Ireland and Wales and Scotland and England. They settle in Normandy. Normandy is named for them. Um, William the Conqueror's grandfather, in fact, was a Norseman called Rollo. 
and uh, Normandy is named for the land which the North, Northerners settled. So they have this immense energy, but what they're after is land, and land and wealth. I mean, they begin as raiders. Um, they find out that these societies do not particularly you know, protect monasteries and churches that well. It's quite simple to row up a river, attack it, kill everybody, take all the treasures. And then they think, well, well look, we're going to settle here instead. So suddenly you've got scores of boats coming across the sea, bringing settlers. And in fact, they were very, very successful, because although the Saxons do fight back and do defeat them, and do in fact make a country which is called England, uh, the whole north and east of England is still incredibly influenced by, by the, the north settlers. I mean, any place which is called Thorpe is a place that that word comes from their language. So they influence the language. In the end, of course, they intermarried. So England is very much a, an amalgam of the Saxon and the Danish societies. Well, that's why I asked, actually, because I am a Russianist. I specialize in the medieval period. And um, my books are in part about the Tatars, who are descendants of the hordes of Genghis Khan. And mm-hmm. one of my professors used to say, you know, that it's an illusion that the the hordes of Genghis Khan were actually looking to control Russia. What they really wanted was just to milk it, basically. They were their main interest was in the Silk Road, so they were very focused on commerce. And the Vikings who went to Russia were also very focused on commerce. They they grabbed the Dnieper trade route and were running furs, you know, to Byzantium and yeah, I mean, stuff like that. So I was curious whether it was actually agricultural land that they were looking for, just... Oh, Lord, yes. In Britain, mm-hmm. they're looking for agricultural land. I mean, there's, there's, there's no great treasure there, in the sense that, I mean, there are silver mines and, and tin mines, but you're not going to become really wealthy off those, but you are going to become wealthy if you can, if you can take... Which is exactly what the Saxons had done, you know, three, four hundred years before. The Saxons were Vikings. Mm-hmm. And the Saxons have absolutely nothing to do with Britain. They're invaders. And they invaded a land that, that, that was called, you know, was, was Welsh. We call it Welsh now. Um, and the Welsh name for England is Flogir, which means the lost land. Um, so the Saxons, in fact, were, were exactly the same. They, they were people who came by ship, warriors, who eventually said, hey, this is nice, fertile land, we'll take it. And they were very successful at it. Um, yes, and of course the Romans even were before them. So and I suppose the Celts, I mean, only the Picts are really native or somewhat native to England, right? Yes, yes. I mean, the, the, the Scots are actually from Ireland. Right. It was very confusing when I wrote the Arthurian books. Um, I really didn't like to use the word Scottish, uh, simply because people would think of Scotland. And in fact, the Scottish then, or the Scotty, were, were a tribe in Ireland. Uh, and they, they then wiped out the pigs. I mean, everybody's wiping everybody else out. It, it, was, it was a whole period. It's not a nice time to be alive. Um, so one thing I... I always had a slight bit of trouble understanding with Uhtred is, as you say, he dislikes Alfred and he doesn't really approve of the Christianization of England and he's he's very much a Dane in, in culture and yet he doesn't fight for the Danes. He, he considers fighting for them, but he doesn't. He ends up defending the Saxons, uh, other than obvious story reasons. Why does he um, embrace the Saxon cause? Uh, because otherwise I can't tell the story of the making of England is the real honest answer oh, to that. Okay. Um, but then, of course, you know, like, like much of writing, you actually, you know, a plot only works if the motives of the characters involved works. 
and and uh, Uhtred's, I think one of his characteristics is, is that he likes women. He's very sensible in that way. And, uh, of course, he, he becomes involved with, uh, with Alfred's daughter. Oh, yes, of Ethel course. And mm-hmm. Ethelflaed's an interest, I and mean, I think a fascinating character. Most, most, and again, I don't expect people outside of England to have heard of her. But I do expect people in England to know about Ethelflaed, and they don't. Oh, well, tell I mean, us about her. I don't know why. I have no idea. I mean, England has not, not been ungenerous in, in writing women out of its history. Uh, and there are a lot of very strong women in, in British history. But Ethelflaed, for some reason, maybe it's because she lived so, so long ago. Uh, there is a statue to her in the Midlands, but, but she's been forgotten. And she eventually becomes the ruler of Mercia, which is the kingdom right in the middle of what is now England and leads campaigns against the Danes, and she's very successful. And she's a considerable warrior in her own right. So I think Uhtred fights for, for, the, for the Saxons, probably because of his affection for Ethelflaed. Can you tell us a bit more about Ethelflaed for people who may be listening uh, who haven't read? Uh... Well, she's, she's um, King Alfred's eldest daughter, and she married a man called Ethelred, who was a... Lord of Mercia. You have to understand at this time that, that what we think of as England is, is four separate kingdoms. There's Wessex down at the bottom, Mercia on top of Wessex, East Anglia, which is the bulge on the right, and Northumbria above that. And Northumbria and East Anglia and almost all, let's say half of Mercia, is under Danish rule. Um, Wessex is the only powerful Saxon kingdom. Mercia, because it's basically been occupied at least half of it by the Danes is in a very weak state and the story of the making of England is the story of the expansion of Wessex, West Saxon power going northwards and Ethelred having married Alfred's daughter is an ally to Alfred in this process um, Ethelred becomes incredibly popular among the Mercians and when Ethelred dies uh, they, they hand his power to her, which I think is extremely unusual for them to voluntarily give power to a woman ruler. It was not common. But it, it says a lot about her popularity. And as I said, she, she is responsible for the, for the capture of a great swathe of northern Mercia from Danish control. So um, this brings us up to the pagan lord, uh, and at this, at the point when the pagan lord begins, uh, King Alfred uh, has just died. And um, uh, let's see, I'm assuming that this doesn't qualify as a spoiler because Alfred is a historical character. You can look up his death on Wikipedia if you want to. Um, <laughs> but that uh, immediately sets off a civil war uh, among potential candidates, um, which forms the backdrop to Death of Kings, which is the novel pre- immediately preceding the Pagan Lord. And by the time the Pagan Lord opens, around 910, uh, that fight has been resolved. So, but unfortunately, the new king is not a fan of Uhtred's. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad you reminded me because I completely forgotten what's in that book. To be honest, you know, I mean, since then I've written two books. Yeah. <laughs> we'll ask about those later. <laughs> can wipe it out of the memory bank. Um, so why is it that Edward is not a fan of Uhtred? Well, I think he probably is, uh, Ed, but Wessex is probably at this point more concerned with East Anglia, um, which is the, the bulge on the right. And uh, certainly Edward is, is no Alfred. And he's inherited a kingdom 
which is pretty secure. I mean, much of the story of the first few books before The Pagan Lord is a story of how Wessex survives the Danish attack. And, I mean, it, it really should have fallen. I mean, there comes a point where the Danes have occupied the whole of Wessex, and yet Alfred manages to fight back. It's an extraordinary story. But by the time Edward takes the throne, Wessex is a powerful, wealthy, militarily strong country. Um, he doesn't have to fight for the, for the boundaries as his father had had to do. His, probably his biggest concern was to take over East Anglia. And the West Saxon forces tended to, they, they took over London, which is already the most, probably the most important town in the whole of Britain already. Um, I've now forgotten your question entirely, but I think that's why. Uh, well, the question Utrecht, was... Utrecht is fighting way to the north. He's not where Edward is. So he's, I don't think he dislikes him particularly. Okay. Well, maybe I misunderstood. Uh, so really, the, the troubles that set off the pagan lord are more part of the little story than uh, what happens at the beginning is that Utrecht discovers that his oldest son, who's also called Utrecht because it's a family tradition, has become a priest. And yeah. So, and Uchard is very unhappy about this. And behaves extremely badly. Um, <laughs> Which is one of the things we like about Uchard. <laughs> yes, he does. He's not a yeah, saint I, by any means. He's not a saint. And, and I mean, I, I do you know, book tours and you talk to, talk to readers. And a whole lot said to me, gosh, we do love the fact that Uchard behaves so badly. So I think I decided to make his behavior even worse and um, because people seem to like it and why not so, he's a rogue he's, he's yes, a rogue on yeah. our side um, and he's in his mid 50s by this time which is a fairly advanced age for 910 yes but he's become a mighty warrior and he's uh, married twice and he's got experience and he's got property although he never seems to hang on to it for very long um and he's still yeah, trying to still, regain Bevenberg. There's still the little story. You see, the little story right. is to go back to Bevenberg and to capture it. And, and what we better not say whether or not he succeeds in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and because you end the book... Well, actually, I mean, the book, you, you know exactly. I mean, a lot of people don't know whether he's dead or alive at the end of the book. And, and they ask me, and I say, who is narrating it? Yes, right. <laughs> Good point. This is a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Besides, you published a sequel now. So. Well, uh, the sequel is ninety-five percent done, and uh-huh. um, so, I mean that's what I'm working on at the moment. So Ushid's bad behavior results in the death of an abbot, although it's something of an accident, um, and this puts him really on the the bad side of the um, the local Christians. Well, of all Christians, yes. Of all Christians, yes. Um, and so he's banished, at least temporarily, I mean, for all of this book. And in a typical Uchid move, he hairs off to London, uh, where he deposits the woman that he's just recaptured from the Danes, and uh, gets a small ship and heads off to reclaim Bevenberg with two, three dozen men, to my account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so he's nothing if not an idiot at times. Um, um, <laughs> So, as I say, the, the idiot goes off to capture Bevenberg with, with, with very few men, I mean, relying basically on the, on the element of surprise. But this is all part of the, of, the, of the little story I was talking about earlier. You know, the big story is the making of England. The little story is, is, is can this guy actually, or can the family, uh, hold on to this, this castle and land? 
which they succeeded, succeeded in doing. And the castle, of course, is held by his uncle at the time, or the fortress, um, and, and he's an enemy. Um, but, but this is it were, sort of filled... And what, what was going on in England at the time, uh, in about 910, 911, is that there is a kind of uneasy peace. The, the Danes had been defeated in a, in a dreadful battle in East Anglia, and it was a huge slaughter on both sides. And it seemed that for a time both sides sort of pulled back. And I suppose they're drawing breath, they're, they're reinforcing themselves. And it does seem to be a period of peace, which of course gives the Christians the excuse to get rid of this pagan from among their midst because we don't need him any longer. Um, you know, we're not at war, so we don't need this pagan Uhtred around. Uh, and off he goes to capture Bebenberg. And then, of course, the war starts up again, and everyone is saying, where's our pagan? We need him. And of course, That's as much of the stories I'll give away. And, of course, we really don't know whether he ever recaptures Bebenberg from this perspective, because his uncle is also called Uhtred, and his uncle's son is called Uhtred, so it could very well be... They're all called Uhtred. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and that's actually in the family tree. It's terribly confusing. And I mean, in the new book, Uhtred's son is quite prominent. And, and it, I know it's going to be horribly confusing. You know, Uhtred says, you think, which Uhtred is it? But it they is all a, did that. Yeah, they did. It I mean, Uhtredson. And people, in fact, did that a lot. I mean, it's very confusing in these old records because, you know, every other person is a Peter or a John. And it's uh, hard to tell which one is which half the time. So let me ask you a broader story about the bigger uh, bigger story. Uh, suppose the Danes had won. Would England be different? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Probably have three sex. <laughs> um, well, I think for a start, we'd be speaking Danish. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'd be doing this interview in Danish. And uh, it wouldn't be called England. It would probably be called Daneland. Uh, I mean, I can't see it would be a particularly bad thing. Denmark's a lovely place. And in many ways, of course, the, the, I'm not going to say the Danes did win, but, but they certainly had this huge influence on, on England in the north and the east. And long after the creation of England and long after the stories that I'm writing, the Danes do, in fact, capture England. And you have King Canute, and King Canute is a Danish king, he's king of Denmark and of, and of England. In fact, Canute sort of went, da- went native. He, he married an English woman and, and became more English than the English. But, but in the end, the Danes do win. Um, and then finally, they're kicked out and the Saxon kings come back as kings of England. And then, of course, William the Conqueror comes in. But William the Conqueror himself is, a, is the grandson of a Northman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the whole thing is a wonderful muddle of Saxon, Danish, and North blood. So, in effect, I mean, there, it might not have been too, too much different. I mean, it, it, it would still be a well, I think, I do think I, I do think the language might have changed, but who knows? Maybe not. I mean, um, you know, the invasion from Normandy didn't cause the English to speak French. So, mm-hmm. who knows? Although we do speak this sort of funny mix of English and, you know, Anglo-Saxon and French, right? Yes, I mean, you know, but those loan words are coming into the language in their thousands during the period that I'm writing about. I mean, we we don't eat iron, we eat eggs. And, you know, almost all the words like skull and skirt and sky, all Danish words. So there's an enormous influence on English language from, from, from Danish in this period. And then, of course, the French come in as well. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons why English is such a splendid language. 
it, it's taken in other words at this huge rate. It has a much larger vocabulary than most, most languages. Right, yeah, it steals everything that's not nailed down, basically, which is a wonderful trait <laughs> in a language. Um, I've heard you say in another interview that you don't plot your novels, you just sit down and write. Is that true? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, I can't, I can't plot a novel to save my life. Um, I mean, I can't sit down and say, right, this is what is going to happen. I mean, I'm on chapter 11 of the book I'm writing now. I genuinely don't know what's going to happen in, ch in chapter 12, which I suspect is the last chapter. Um, I think it was Eel Doctorow who said that writing a novel is a bit like driving on an unfamiliar, winding country road in the dark. I mean, you can only see as far ahead as your rather feeble headlights show. Now, I know not everybody, you know, C.S. Forrester was a great one for plotting his books out in great detail in advance, and he would have the whole thing written down on cards, chapter by chapter. And, and of course, you know, famously, Joanna Rowling did that with Harry Potter. And I envy those people. I mean, it must be wonderful, but I just can't do it. I have to, I mean, I sit there. One of the joys of reading a novel, I think, is to find out what happens. And I guess that's one of the joys I have in writing it, is finding out what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet you don't have to rewrite. You just, you... When oh, you God, get to I rewrite end. all the time. Oh, you do? But, I mean, rewriting used to be a, a, a struggle because you, you know, I'm talking years ago now, back in the dark ages, when you used a, a typewriter. Um, and if you rewrite with a typewriter, you actually have to have a new piece of paper in the machine and you were rewriting totally. Um, with a computer, it's so easy. So I have no idea how often I rewrite because, I mean, whenever I'm writing, I'm always going back and changing something. So all the time. Mm -hmm. I remember I wrote my first chapter of my dissertation on a typewriter. It was a nightmare. I was so happy when the first word processor came along. Oh, no, it's the one, though I do know people who, who still write longhand mm -hmm. um, and, and, and claim that, that you know, they can think because the speed of it is, is, gives you time to think. And, I mean, the lovely Mary Wesley, who died a few years ago, uh, she, she refused to get into computers. She wrote her novels longhand, and wonderful novels they are too. Mm -hmm. I interviewed someone, uh, Lee Smith, in January, I think it was. Uh, she writes everything out longhand. I was... Very impressed. Not not inclined to imitate her, but very impressed no, that I'm she could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so Ujit has a motto, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but it's something like Weird Bithful Arid. Is that That's terrific. Weird Bithful Arid, yes. It's from a poem, The Wanderer, um, an Anglo-Saxon poem, and it, and it just says, fate is inevitable. Mm -hmm. Whatever happens to you, it would say, it's a rather sort of Calvinist view in a way. Um, it's very much part of, of, of Saxon mentality that, that, that fate decrees. I mean, in some ways, I think probably the Christians changed it, but certainly it's a, it's a, pagan, it's a pagan idea that, that you're a victim of fate. And whatever you choose to do, you don't know it, but you're, you're, you're just living out your fate, and fate is inexorable. And can you give us some hints about... You have another book coming out, The Empty Throne, is that right? Another Uhtred book? That's the one I'm writing now, yes. Oh, that's the one you're writing now. Okay, so... Yeah. And that's really, that, that's really about how Ethelflaed comes to power. Oh, well, that'll be interesting. I like Ethelflaed. I like Ethelflaed, too. So does Uhtred. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, he has good taste. <laughs> um, so what would you like readers to take away from The Pagan Lord? 
Um, well, what I'd like to take away is, is, is an enjoyment of the story, because in the end, what we're doing is writing stories. I mean, people often say to me, are you an historian? And I say, no, I'm not. I mean, if you want to know about what happened in the Peninsular War, then I strongly recommend Charles Esdale's wonderful history book called The Peninsular War. And good as that book is, I don't think it'll keep you awake at night thinking I must read the next chapter. Um, my job is to tell a story. And history is important to it. It's very important to it. But, but above everything, it's got to be a story. So I hope what they take away is the enjoyment of a terrific story. Well, I think they will. I did. I really enjoyed this book. Um, you also have a book on Waterloo coming out, though, right? Yeah, this is my, the first non-fiction book I've written and probably the only non-fiction book I'll ever write. Uh, but I, li I enjoyed writing it. It, was, it. I did it last summer. Um, and the Bicentennial is coming up next year, 2015. And I, I've always been fascinated by the Battle of Waterloo. It's, it, it, it's an incredibly important battle. And it was a horrible battle. I mean... All battles are horrible. This is more horrible than most. And so Waterloo is simply a, a non-fiction book about those four days, the four days of the Waterloo campaign and the three, act, the three battles that were fought in four days. And you, um, does Sharp go to Waterloo as well? Yeah, there is a Sharp book about Waterloo, but, but um, I, I'm not sure he's even mentioned in the non-fiction book. He might be. I think there, there might be one mention in the foreword. Mm -hmm. um, but the, again, the, the, the Sharp book on Waterloo, Sharp's Waterloo, it's not, you know, it's not the history. It's, it's told from Sharp's point of view, and it's a rather Victorian point of view, which, which uh, sort of says, gosh, we the British won the battle, and the Prussians arrived late. Uh, and, and that's actually wrong, but that's, you know, what the British thought and what Sharp thinks, because he's British. Mm -hmm. um, the, the book on Waterloo itself, The Battle of Waterloo, uh, is, a, is a much more nuanced, I hope, and, and a much fairer view. And will you continue Uch's story? Oh, Lord, yes. I mean, the, 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 if you think, you know, you're very lucky if you know when your nation started. I mean, I'm an American now, and I know it goes back to July the 4th, 1776, right? And you can pin that date down. That's great. England can has no idea. If you ask the English, you know, t tell me how England actually started. They haven't got a clue. But really, the decisive event took place in the 930s, which is still about 20 years away from, from where I'm writing at the moment with Utrecht. And it was a battle called the Battle of Brunenburg. And we don't even know where it was. We don't know where Brunenburg was. But we have a pretty fair idea that we could pin it down to one place. And at this battle, all the Saxon enemies combined, except the Welsh. There were the Norsemen, the Danes, and the Scots all came together to fight against the West Saxon army and their Mercian allies. And it was a huge victory for the Saxons. And at the end of it, uh, Edward's son, Alfred's grandson, is the first king of a united England. And it's the first time you actually have the word England being used as it was originally used as a description of that, that geographical area where the English language or the Anglo language was spoken. It was called Englerland. But after the Battle of Brunenburg, there is a political entity called England. 
So really the foundation date of England is the date of the Battle of Brunenburg. Great. So we have at least 20 years worth of witch's stories to look forward to. I agree. We've got at least, yes, I don't know, four or five books yet to come. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, if I live that long. Well, this, you, you have to. If Uhtred can in the <laughs> 10th century, you can certainly manage it. Um, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Bernard. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for, your, for, for inviting me on. That's really kind of you. And thank you for listening to our podcast. The New Books Network is run by volunteers. If you enjoyed the interview you've just heard, please consider donating to our network. It can be as simple as going to any page at http newbooksnetwork, that's one word, dot com and clicking on the link to shop at amazon.com. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Bernard Cornwell, the author of The Pagan Lord and many other books. You can find out more about him at www.bernardcornwell.net. Like us on Facebook, search for new books in historical fiction, and follow us on Twitter at capital N-E-W, capital B-O-O-K-S, capital H-I-S-T, capital F-I-C. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also visit me at blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. My social media links are under the About Me tab. You can find information about my books under the Books tab. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.